exploring the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology, presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project, with your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. I am, as always, your host, Bobby Black. Today, October 26th, is a day that lives in infamy in the world of cannabis. Because it was on this day, back in 1989, that the DEA raided dozens of horticulture supply stores in 46 states in an effort to shut down or cripple cannabis cultivation across the United States, a day that became known as Black Thursday. These raids were part of a massive ongoing DEA sting codenamed Operation Green Merchant. But Green Merchant didn't just go after grow shops. They also targeted a notorious cannabis seed merchant in Amsterdam, as well as the two magazines that the seed company and grow shops advertised in, with the hope of charging them all with a criminal conspiracy and shutting them down for good. One of those magazines was, naturally, High Times. The other was a legendary cultivation-centered publication based in Oregon called Sensimilia Tips. My guest today was the founder and publisher of Sensimilia Tips for nearly a decade, whose grow shop was one of those raided by the DEA exactly 32 years ago today. Please join me in welcoming to the show Mr. Tom Alexander. Hey Tom, how are you? Hi Bobby, I'm good thanks, how about yourself? I'm good, thanks for asking, and thanks for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. So I want to start off by uh, getting a little personal background on you. Can you tell us a little about your early experiences with marijuana, your early life? Well, in high school, I, I graduated in the late 60s. In high school, I was a, a, a jock, a, a frat boy type guy. And uh, anybody that accused me of using cannabis, I just put him up against the wall and threatened to beat the shit out of him. <laughs> but then when I went to college in New Haven, Connecticut, I went to anti-war demonstrations and I met these Vietnam vets that brought tie stick over from Vietnam in their duffel bags because back then customs didn't check the the soldiers coming back. They just stuffed tie stick in all their <laughs> duffel bags and left all their belongings in Vietnam. Anyway, at the demonstrations, the first time I, I smoked cannabis, I got totally blasted on tie stick. And uh, the next day, all of us said, man, that was fun. And we just uh, kept our connections with these Vietnam vets and always had good ties stick. So then uh, I first grew it on Cape Cod in 1975 after graduating college. A whole bunch of us moved up to Cape Cod and, and uh, we didn't know male, female plants of cannabis. And we just threw in some uh, Mexican ditchweed seeds. And when the male plants burst with pollen, we thought we hit the jackpot. <laughs> but then uh, <laughs> then later we got some female buds out of it that were all seeded like Mexicans ditchweed is. And then I'm skipping a lot of, of periods in my life here. In 1977, I moved to... Uh, Oregon, and immediately met up with these Hawaiian growers that bought up five farms in Oregon and hired me as the manager of one of the farms. And they had all this great seed stock from Hawaii and, um, and all crosses with indica and sativa. And, and so um, at the time, I didn't know, I found out later, that they were taking the Oregon bud that was really good because and importing it to exporting it to Hawaii 
where uh, they were getting 3,200 a pound, where in Oregon it was only 800 to 1,000 a pound Wow! back in the late 70s. So the next year I, I got my cut of the action on that farm and uh, bought a Kubota tractor. And the next year uh, I found a place in Oregon that was this 160-acre turn-of-the-century homestead way out in the boonies, one-room cabin, no electricity. And so I... What I learned from these Hawaiian growers, I stuck out on my own and grew uh, uh, over a half acre, uh, almost three quarter acre of cannabis. And we ended up and we grew it from seeds. Back then, clones weren't that popular. And um, it, and I had all this Hawaiian seed stock that I acquired from the Hawaiian guys. And it was uh, crosses with indica and sativa and some ruderalis uh they didn't have autoflower it was true ruderalis which was this scrawny little uh two three foot high plant that smelled like hash <laughs> and um we only had like a dozen of those plants it was mainly uh sativa and indica anyway uh we culled all the males and uh end of september of of 79 the cops busted me and my pregnant wife and our helper with um over 1230 plants huh, wow i read that you were at the they they originally found out about it because of a timber scout is that true yeah uh this old homestead had old growth uh douglas fir and and cedar on it and the landowner later told me well you should told me what you were doing i went ahead and come out and uh yeah they they had a guy cruise the the land on foot and then um when he saw the patch he told the sheriff and then the sheriff did aerial surveillance and uh also um, one day this guy with a dog uh the dog went running down to the patch and i said no i'll go get your dog you stay right here and looking back, I think that guy was a cop because oh. he, he had this aura about him that he was a cop. And so um, he stayed on the road and I went to get his dog and the dog was right on the patch. And um, so. Uh, so it was probably they, a dog that was trained to look for the weed, right? <laughs> right, I guess. I don't yeah. know. He said he was a hunting dog. Yeah, he was hunting for cannabis. <laughs> but. Um, we spent the night in jail waiting our arraignment, and uh, the next day, the um, judge let us out on our own recognizance. And um, I went. The thing was, is we didn't have our car because they drove us in the cop cars from the remote homestead. And so my helper, which I didn't know, he had a three fifty seven Magnum gun. And the cops said, when they released us, said, you know, you got to carry that out in the open because you don't have a concealed weapons permit and uh, uh, we will arrest you if you conceal it. So we're walking down the street to this hippie vegetarian restaurant with the fucking gun. <laughs> and um, we go into the hippie restaurant and I see the newspaper and there I am on the front page getting handcuffed with all oh my plants in the background. And all the hippies are saying, oh, you're our hero. Oh. So we're like, uh, we're like these uh, celebrities in the town. And uh, I look at the search warrant. They gave, you know, when we got our belongings to get out of jail, I look at the search warrant and it had the description of the property wrong. They put a southwest or a northwest in the description of the property. And so I... The, a couple of days later, uh, after the weekend, I took it to my lawyer and he said, yeah, uh, I'll take it to the tax assessor, but I don't know if it's going to get you to charges dropped. But the tax assessor said, yeah, it's it's the wrong location. And so um, our next court appearance, he told the judge and there was documentation from the tax assessor. Judge took five minutes and said, case dismissed. Well, the police, since they didn't need the evidence anymore, stole the evidence. 
and three of the sheriffs got arrested with this by the state police for stealing the evidence because I guess they had been doing this. And I wonder if that's why they wrote the search warrant wrong. I never could find out if that's why they wrote it wrong, but um, they did it on a couple other cases too that were a lot smaller. They were more personal use cases, but the state police were investigating them. And then in my case, when it was such a big um, quantity of plants, they busted them. So they were going to sell it, but they hadn't sold it yet. They got busted before they... Right, yeah. right. Okay. And uh, I was facing, and my wife and our helper was facing 20 years and a $100,000 fine. These guys, when they pleaded no contest, the DA goes, Your Honor, they've suffered enough. I suggest they get three years probation, and that's what they got. So at that point, I got really pissed off, and I was going to write a book, but all my grower friends said, No, no, I'll do an ongoing magazine. So it it would have be like a journal and we could um, tell our stories and write articles and stuff. So I said, okay. And not knowing anything about publishing up in the one room cabin under the kerosene lantern, I had a manual typewriter and typed out the first pages of sent me a tips, basically telling my story and um, some growing tips. And it was like uh, a 16 page newsprint, funky uh on the pace upwards some of the the type got lifted off by rubber cement so i just penciled in uh, <laughs> the the letters that got lifted off so that first issue was so funky and uh i took the thousand copies and i drove down through southern oregon down to humboldt and mendocino and basically sold it on street corners and got it into a couple stores grower supply stores and it immediately took off i mean i i immediately recognized that it would be a popular thing you were filling and a so, you were filling a niche of course yeah um i'm sorry i said you were filling a niche a, a niche that needed yeah, to be yeah. filled um because high times was sort of they they were sort of into all drugs at that point and basically sent me a tips as after steve hager came on they saw that that the growing situation was where it's at. And so they started the Grow America column and they actually tried to buy me out a couple of times and they flew me down to uh, Palm Springs where the board was meeting and the Kennedy gave me this funky offer. I said, fuck you. And, <laughs> and I kept doing it. And, okay. So with high times at the time, were you guys viewing each other as competition? Were you adversaries or were you looked at each other as kind of colleagues in the same field? What was the relationship? Well, I sort of ignored them because they sort of ignored me. But as the man, when I, when I became successful, I was on Geraldo and Donahue and Nightline and Today Show and all these major uh, New York Times wrote me up. And when I became successful, that's when they saw me as a threat. And when I got into bookstores and newsstands, they really saw me as a threat. And um, that's when they took, flew me down to Palm Springs and tried to buy me out. And what they wanted to do was basically kill Sense Me a Tips as a independent magazine and make it a, a column in uh, sort of replace the Grow America column and have Sense Me a Tips as a column. But they wanted to give me $10,000 and some shares in the company. And as we saw Ed Rosenthal get screwed with his shares, it would have been worthless. But And so I I said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. And kept doing it. I was, you know, bootstrapping it and learning by... I took a journalism course in college. It was basically... Uh, the professor was called Coach Galley because I played football and hockey in college and they just sent all the athletes to this course and he basically was a ex-New York Times head honcho reporter and just told stories about the New York Times. He didn't really teach us about journalism hmm. and I, I wouldn't have learned how to put together a magazine anyway in that class. And so I really had no background in publishing or journalism and just learned by experience and um i got friends that i lived in corvallis oregon where hewlett packard was 
1982, I got a laptop, one of the first laptops made. It was a, a HP 110, I think it was called. And so I started, uh, this is two, two and a half years after um, first publishing. So I, I would start doing typesetting on the laptop and bring it, bring my computer to the typesetter and download all the coding. And so the pace up sheets were typeset that way. And I just learned by experience all this stuff. And then when the Macintosh came out in 84, I bought the first Mac and hmm. um, started uh, just sending it over the air, over the phone lines to the typesetter. And then just got, and then hired a staff at that point and had a graphic person and an editor and, that's when it really got polished and started becoming um, professional and, you know, less typos and it had more graphic look to it. Yeah. So you, you originally started off with just 16 pages. I read that you, you printed in about uh, a thousand or so copies initially and you were hand right. distributing them, as you said. But before long, you, you found a distributor down in the Bay Area, right? I found Last Gas in San Francisco in Homestead Book Company in Seattle. Oh, and Dave. <laughs> Dave Tatelman. Oh, yeah. He he became, you know, Jorge, David, we all became like this close, close-knit friends. And uh, Ron Turner at Last Gas, they, they all uh, helped distribute the magazine. And uh, Jorge wrote a few articles. And uh, it, it just took on a life of its own. I mean, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it. I learned by experience and, and it just took off. And then when I was the article in the New York times and that precipitated, uh, Geraldo and, and, uh, Donahue and, and very, and nightline and today. show, and, um, so what was, just, what was that coverage that you got that, that got all that going? What was it about? Uh, New York times wrote an article about sends me a tips and how it got started and um, how it took off. And um, and the thing that pissed off the DEA is on all those TV shows, I was on the, the main stage with all, like Charles Rangel and the head of the DEA or, or the head of the California DEA. And, I would, you know, I would be in a suit and tie and I would look presentable and I would present uh, arguments that, looking back today they were all true you know one of their famous arguments was well if it's legalized the kids are going to use it more well now studies show that in all the legalized states either used by the kids or either at the same level or below because it's not a forbidden fruit anymore yeah and um so you know they would they would put forth just totally ludicrous arguments but back then they basically had the airwaves uh, way more than than people like me, and you know the public just bought it, hook, line, and sinker because they just basically used kids as props. Yeah, and that, this this was back in like '84, right when you did the media yeah, appearances. Yeah, mid '80s, yeah, to late '80s, yeah. So you were publishing. Uh, Sentiment Tips was published quarterly, right? Um, what was your what was your uh, circulation uh, typically and page count after the initial you know early days? It was quarterly until. Um, the mid eighties. And then after I was on the shows and stuff and had a staff that became bi-monthly and then our, our circulation got to 21,000, um, subscriptions and distribution. And, and, um, then it hit the deck after green merchant. Of course, of course. And we'll, we'll get to that a little later. Uh, so I do want to go back. You mentioned Jorge Cervantes. Um, can you tell us a little about how you met Jorge and how he started contributing to the magazine? Yeah, in 1983, I had, uh, I skipped something in, in the way I started uh, sending <laughs> me a tip. When I was down in Humboldt and when I went to Seattle uh, about six months later, I saw all these grow shops and growers with wads a hundred dollar bill buying fertilizer and drip irrigation up in seattle they were buying grow lights so i started the first hybrid store called full moon farm products that had both hydroponics and grow lights and outdoor supplies and so um jorge came into my store in 83 
and said, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book on cannabis or as he called it back then, marijuana, as we all called it back then. Yeah. And I said, well, come and come back when you finish it. And so about six months later, he comes in and throws this book down and he was like me. He didn't have any experience in publishing and it was funky and, and had a color cover and stuff, but it had all kinds of typos and stuff like mine did. And I said, great, let's go out back and smoke a joint. And uh, that's, we became close, really best friends. And, uh, and, and it took off, advertised in Sense Tips, and it became the Bible and competitor with Ed and Mel Frank. Yeah. Who were some of the other uh, grow writers that you put, you called your writers from basically from the outlaw underground growers in the, in the area, yeah. right? I mean, I know yeah. uh, Michael Wolf Siegel was another big contributor. Can you tell us a little about Michael? Yeah. Michael and um, Kevin Bajornson up in Seattle, they, they wrote, you know, groundbreaking articles on uh, indoor growing. They introduced Sea Green and uh, Screen of Green. Uh, they wrote articles on lighting, uh, you know, the best lights to use for vegetative and best lights to use for flowering. And um, just Robert Connell Clark wrote, Ed wrote, uh, Sam Sazelty, Dave Watson wrote a uh, couple articles. It just took on a life of its own. I mean, I didn't even, these guys approached me and, uh, it just worked out. Yeah. So you were covering uh, what were basic cultivation uh, techniques that are considered, you know, commonplace today. But the, you were this was groundbreaking. This was the first time this stuff was being published, right? Right. And fertilizers. We covered mycorrhizal fungi. We covered humic acid, fulvic acid. This is back in the '80s, before anybody even, you know, now uh, with my other good friend Jeff Lowenfels, who wrote teeming with nutrients and, and teeming with, uh, he wrote three books on teeming, uh, mycorrhizal fungi and, uh, forget the other one, but, uh, this is before they even became, you know, widely used as today. So we, we did groundbreaking stuff on fertilizers, on lighting and on, on techniques on drying and curing. And we just did groundbreaking stuff, which, today is commonplace everywhere yeah and, and i think part of the reason uh correct me if i'm wrong that that uh, the knowledge that you were putting out there in the magazine took off so so quickly was because uh during the 80s you had the whole reagan war on drugs era and growers were being forced indoors right i mean they had these aircraft that were going around uh looking for outdoor gardens so people felt like they had to bring it indoors right right and then they were using aircraft with infrared on indoor too and um they were using that to bust indoor growers too but outdoor was where the major um crackdowns were happening and in fact they uh denied that it was moving indoors for years and uh i said well one of my appearances on tv i said well you're the advertising arm of the industry because you're saying it's not moving indoors you're not even looking for it indoors and uh you're helping people move it indoors and uh it took them several years before they acknowledged that oh yeah it has moved indoors yeah well i'm happy to say we we actually have a few issues of of the classic um uh, Sensimilia Tips issues in our museum collection. Uh, the oldest one we have is volume two, number three from 1981. We also have the summer 1985 edition, which is the fifth anniversary issue with Pat Ryan's artwork on the cover, that beautiful uh, uh, right. plant that he yeah. painted. Um, and we have a summer 1986 uh, issue as well. Um, and of course, that this m movement indoor was what really fueled uh, what we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes, which is Operation Green Merchant. But right. first, but first, uh, we're going to take a quick uh, pause for a commercial break. But don't go away because we'll be right back with more from Tom Alexander from Sensimilia Tips Magazine here on Cancerpology. All right, and we are back 
here on Canthropology. Our guest this episode is the former publisher of Sensimedia Tips magazine, Mr. Tom Alexander. Welcome back, Tom. Thanks. So um, we discussed at length in the, in the last segment about your about Sensimedia Tips, how it got started, who some of the contributors were, and, and all the groundbreaking coverage you were doing. Um, and you mentioned that uh, right after you started, shortly after you started Sensimedia Tips, you also opened your own grow shop up in, uh, in Corvallis, uh, Oregon, where you were living, um, called Full Moon Farm Products, correct? Correct. And, and it was that, right on Main Street in downtown Corvallis, right in in front of everybody i mean it was on main street <laughs> it had windows that were 12 feet high and what we did is we put grow rooms right in those two front windows and it was right in their faces i mean we were growing tomatoes and showing that plants can be huge you know they they grew 10 feet tall um we were showing what could be done with these lights and growing plants right on main street yeah, and so the the magazine and the shop were based in the same building, but they were separate, right? They were separate companies. Right. Upstairs on the second floor was the publishing offices, and then um, the grow shop was 5,000 square feet on the ground floor. And so you were selling all kinds of different, everything you could need for growing, right? Indoor, outdoor, fertilizers, lights, all that kind of stuff, right? Correct. And yeah. you, the shop was doing well, I'm assuming. You were making a good living with that. Doing, it was doing really good. And uh, that was why they wanted to take me out there, too. And I started, I don't know if you knew, I started Growing Edge a year before Green Merchant because I saw the handwriting on the wall. Because 1984, the drug paraphernalia law, which they used to bust Tommy Chong, had it written in there, metal halide lights, high-pressure sodium lights, hydroponic equipment. So in 1984, I saw the handwriting on the wall. It took them, you know, five years to utilize that drug paraphernalia law, which is what they used for Green Merchant. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I was looking up online trying to identify the exact law that that was, and I found a few different ones, and I wasn't sure. I was having trouble nailing it down because there was a 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act there was a Drug Misuse and Trafficking Act in 1985, but then there was also the Federal Drug Paraphernalia Statute, uh, which I'm guessing is the one you're talking about. Uh, I think it was called 21 USC 863, and that was became part of the Controlled Substances Act. Is that the one that you're talking right. about? Yeah, so the, uh, the, the statute you're talking about that basically indirectly makes grow equipment illegal it considers it as paraphernalia and it's based on intent right they say if you're right. if you're using it or selling it or buying it with the intent of using it for illegal purposes to grow marijuana which is illegal then they can consider it paraphernalia and that was the basis that they used to launch this operation and go after the grow shops and the growers right correct yeah, and so th- your shop was only one of many shops they were actually doing this with. They, they uh, had been conducting this uh, this operation since 87 for almost two years uh, before they actually did the big uh, sting. Um, and they were doing this to grow shops all around, going in, trying to get people to talk about marijuana, selling them equipment. And, you know, most of the shops smartly, you know, didn't play along, but I guess the few where they found suckers to do that was the justification that they used to get the warrants, right? Well, it was, it wasn't a few, it was 41, I think, that eventually grew to 61. And um, they used various entrapment techniques and various stories to, to do it. In my store, they came in as uh, Vietnam vets, and I had a manager, and they cased the store out for several weeks before they came in and and did this. They came in and posed as Vietnam vets, and my manager and one employee both were Vietnam vets. And they said, hey, we're Vietnam vets. We got post-traumatic stress syndrome. We need cannabis, no, they call it marijuana, uh, marijuana to grow, to treat our PTSD. So every two weeks we'd have a staff meeting and I'd say, look, they're going to come in here and pose as cannabis growers and you got to throw them out of the store. Don't get in a dialogue with them, throw them out, call the police if they don't leave and get them arrested for trespassing. Right. You're not even allowed to say marijuana in the store, right? That's not even, you didn't even permit that. 
I mean, we had signs we we didn't permit. Well, these guys go, my two employees that were Vietnam vets, said, we can't sell you that if you're going to grow marijuana. And instead of getting throwing them out of the store, they start a dialogue of a half, an, and I got all this information from the uh, search warrant or court proceeding, uh, search warrant. Uh, they get in a dialogue about Vietnam, and after half an hour, the DEA guys go, well, we changed their mind, we're going to grow tomatoes, and they sold them the lights. And so the judge goes, when he wrote, when he approved the search warrant, said, well, the employees should have known they were lying that they were going to grow cannabis or marijuana, and which boggles my mind because they're lying to begin with. They're not going to grow anything. They're just trying to entrap my employees. So they use that conversation as the intent that my employees were selling them the equipment to grow cannabis, and that was the basis of the forfeiture search warrant. The DEA actually uh, subpoenaed UPS shipping records for these stores as well, right? Right, they did. And this was a way for them to identify individual growers who had bought equipment from you or from other shops? And in our store, a dentist's office had a 400-watt halide-grown plants in his office and um, various innocent people, orchid growers, and... um, They didn't get visited by the DEA, but it just shows that it wasn't all cannabis growers. It was various people in grown legal plants. And they were outraged when it all happened and did a a fundraiser for me and and, uh, raised 15 grand, had a band and stuff. And I uh, got up and gave a speech where... I said, if you disagree with what happened, here's the federal U.S. attorney, call his office. So they, for a whole week, were calling his office. And he told my lawyer, tell that motherfucker, he's, if he doesn't sign this agreement, which they drew up an agreement, where they get to keep all the equipment, $75,000 worth of equipment and inventory that we're going to charge them with conspiracy, which criminal conspiracy, which if they had, it, they would have done it because they hated my ass, but it was a threat. And my wife said, accept it or I'm going to divorce you. <laughs> and um, so I signed the agreement that they get to keep all the inventory and I would never open another nursery or garden supply uh, store or face future prosecution. So I signed it and uh, gave away my business, basically. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to take it back a second. Um, cause, uh, so Reagan left office in 1988, and of course his vice president, George Bush, became president. Um, and towards the end of his first year in office on September 5th of 1989, he gave a nationally televised address from the Oval Office uh, on drug policy in which he p- pitched massive increases in funding for law enforcement and prisons. And the speech primarily focused on crack cocaine. He never even mentioned marijuana by name in the speech, but he did lump all the drug users and dealers together into one category. And it, it soon became clear that pot smokers were high on his target list because just over a month later – is when he launched this big effort to shut down cannabis growers. Well, it was the biggest effort to ever in, in the United States to shut down cannabis growers, codenamed Operation Green Merchant. And so this all went down on October 26, 1989. This was when the federal drug agents raided, uh, I believe, 65 cultivation sites and dozens of retail stores all over the country uh, that sold horticulture equipment uh, across 46 states, every state except Hawaii, Nebraska, North Dakota, and West Virginia. Um, over a hundred people were arrested, uh, and this day has—it's uh, a day of infamy in the cannabis community that's become known as Black Thursday. Um, Tom, what what can you tell us w- about your recollections of that day? Well, I was getting calls. I went into the office at about eight o'clock. We opened at ten thirty, and I was getting called. And I went through the back door. They, so I was getting calls all morning saying 
like Bill Ross in, in New York City and, and various people from the East Coast were calling my stores raided. I got the DEA here. So I look out the front and there's three unmarked cars with people sitting on them. I said, shit, they're going to hit me next. And so, and they didn't bother parking in the back. So that's the way I went into the store. And so for two and a half hours, I just saw them. And um, so then at 1030, when I, oh, I called my lawyer. And uh, so my lawyer comes after they actually come into the store. So when I go and unlock the door at 1030, they rush out of their cars TV cameras are there. They told the local TV stations, but not the local police, which pissed off the police. <laughs> they knocked an old lady down, oh. which also pissed off the police, and uh, came into the store, threw the search warrant down. Meanwhile, my lawyer comes, and uh, they they had they said. Do you have any weapons on you? And he goes, yeah, I have a gun in my briefcase. And they said, well, open your briefcase. And um, he, he had, he, his concealed weapon permit was expired. So they uh, took the gun and uh, gave it back to him after they were all done, but didn't charge him with anything. And um, so they were just backed a U-Haul up to the store and just started taking out inventory, lights, drip irrigation, fertilize, everything that was listed on the search, the forfeiture search warrant. And the thing, uh, what's what's ironic about, or I guess that's the right word, it's, uh, forfeiture is to even fight to get the stuff back, you got to put 10% down bond to fight to get the stuff back. And uh, so I was going to have to come up with seventy five hundred to fight to get it back. I was going to say and how much? How much do you estimate? Uh, you know, they did they confiscate? It was seventy five thousand wow. worth of inventory. And um, but in the meantime, they threw this ultimatum after at me after I did the speech, and people called the office and tied his office up for a week that they were going to charge me a criminal conspiracy, which. If they had the the evidence of that, they would have done it because they hated my ass so much. <laughs> and so um, I signed the agreement, and uh, they kept the inventory, and I closed my store. What do you think they did with it? Did they sell it, destroy it? They put it on an auction. So they sold it anyway, so it's, it's out there anyway. Right. Well, I've talked to growers who said they would go – and when the police, the local police or the sheriff or state police or DEA, when they bust growing operations, they sell it at auctions. Now, the DEA gives the proceeds, part of the proceeds, I think it's like 25% to any local agency that participated in it. But the local agencies, sheriffs or local police or state police, they keep all the proceeds. And so it's it was an incentive for for cops to just you know sell it on the black market or in a auction and um i've talked to growers that have gone to these auctions and bought supplies at these or put the auction bid and got the supplies yeah it's ridiculous some of the local the state police changed their thing where they didn't sell the uh equipment at an auction they give it to schools and so schools would start uh, an indoor grow where they grew vegetables or flowers or something. And schools that had greenhouses would put in the greenhouse. Yeah. And so they can seize, I, they can seize this stuff without even charging people, right? Like some right. of the people it's weren't even civil charged. Forfeiture, civil forfeiture is uh, they just need 51% uh, uh, instead of uh, – Beyond a reasonable doubt, it's a preponderance of doubt. It's like 51%, uh, uh, and they can just go to a judge and, and um, get a forfeiture warrant and just take stuff. And uh, when they started giving it to schools, I said, great, 
it's the future cannabis growers. They're teaching them how to do it. <laughs> oh man! So, so what were you actually charged with? I wasn't. I was never charged. That's why they were going to threaten me. They threatened me with criminal conspiracy if I didn't let them keep the stuff. And that's the thing. They would have charged me with criminal conspiracy if they had that. Sure. But because because New Moon Publishing was a separate corporation and Full Moon Farm Products was a separate corporation, they could have probably charged me as the owner of both companies, but I don't, I don't think it would have been a, a long shot to convict me. Yeah, I mean, but they, the government agents specifically admitted that they targeted businesses that advertised in your magazine and in High Times, right? So the real motivation, uh, as many believe, or as they've even admitted, likely, is that they were trying to put Sensimilia Tips and High Times out of business by basically killing off their advertising base and, and starving them to death, right? Correct. And a lot of bookstores and newsstands dropped it because they were afraid they would get pulled into this mess yeah and even was, even advertisers that were not hit by raids uh were pulling out because they were scared they'd be next right right but as i referred earlier a year before all this happened i saw the handwriting on the wall because i saw that drug paraphernalia bill that that listed lights and fertilizer and stuff as as drug paraphernalia, I started Growing Edge, which all my advertising rolled over to Growing Edge, where we covered high-tech gardening, and uh, we had university professors writing for us. I'd go to uh, International Society of Horticulture Science. I went to 21 countries where the, every year they had uh, a conference in a different country on controlled environment, hydroponics, stuff like that. And then I'd, I'd go to I'd spend a month in, af, after the conference and go to farms and, and write articles about people that were growing hydroponically lettuce or tomatoes or whatever. But all that information on how to do it can be used for cannabis. And so that really pissed them off. <laughs> it was, they, they, they went on TV and said, yeah, Growing Edge doesn't mention marijuana, but we know those pictures mean marijuana, tomatoes <laughs> and lettuce. And so they were basically advertising for me, but um, and yeah. Growing Edge took off and it had a circulation of forty five thousand. I did it for twenty one years. Yeah, and, wow. Um, and all my subscribers rolled over to Growing Edge. Nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, High Times managed to survive by eking out issues on a shoestring budget for a year or two and, and just riding out the storm. But unfortunately, you know, since you weren't so lucky, since Amelia Tips did get shut yeah, down. We, uh, the final issue was what? November 1990, right? No, it was earlier in um, earlier in 1990. We did two issues trying to just do it on a shoestring and it just didn't work out and you know growing edge was taken off so i i just folded sense tips and put all my effort into growing edge which yeah became really successful yeah all right um well we're gonna take one more quick uh commercial break but don't go away we'll be right back with more about sense Amelia tips and operation green merchant here on canthropology All right, welcome back. Uh, once again, our guest this week is Tom Alexander, uh, former editor, former publisher of Sensimedia Tips and Growing Edge magazines. So uh, we we discussed uh, your magazine at length. Uh, we discussed your grow shop, and we discussed the Operation Green Merchant raids, uh, Black Thursday. Um, but it wasn't just the grow shops and the magazines that they were after. They also were going after seed companies, or, or rather one in particular, the Seed Bank of Holland, which was run by uh, an Australian Dutch uh, guy named Neville Schumachers. Um, how much do you know about that aspect of Green Merchant? Just from reading about it and investigating it myself, I mean, there's so many um, unsubstantiated rumors of how it all came down. Um, all I know is they were trying to tie Sensimia tips into it because we 
accepted advertisings from the seed bank and um, helped get the word out about the seed bank. Uh, I think we did an article about it. I don't remember really, but um, they tried tying us into it because we accepted advertising from them. So basically, I, I guess what happened was Neville uh, had started the Seed Bank of Holland uh, with uh, primarily with genetics he got from Sam the Skunk Man and other California uh, growers. And he had decided to take out an ad to sell his seeds uh, to Americans, basically, an ad in High Times. Uh, and I think that was in, um, if I'm not mistaken, 84, he first started that um, and started publishing a seed catalog as well. And then uh, in 1987, uh, Steve Hager, uh, the editor-in-chief of High Times at the time, uh, did a big feature on Neville called Inside Cannabis Castle in High Times. And uh, between the seed ads and the big article on Neville, I think most people believe that's what kind of drew the DEA's attention to, to, to launch this, right? Right. And there was also an article in the Washington Mainstream Magazine about it. And um, from what I hear, that's what got Steve to do the article in High Times because the article in the Washington Magazine came out months before. And so there was this one agent that I read was in that was the one uh, the Operation Green Merchant was basically his brainchild, a guy named Jim Stewart. And uh, he had this idea that he could tie it all together, but that like by because of the ads of the seeds in the magazine and the grow equipment being sold in the magazine and the grow, you know, advice being given in the magazine that he could tie this all together and charge everybody with this big criminal conspiracy. Right. Right. Well, really, Operation Green Merchant came out of Seattle and the, the DEA guy up in Seattle got uh, wind from the State Department that. They were saying, you want us to uh, spray paraclot on all the, the cocaine down here, but what about your uh, cannabis problem up in the United States? And so this agent up in Seattle started, and then the agent down in New Orleans, they sort of tied them together, the two separate investigations. Oh, so it was two separate investigations that then got kind of grouped together. That got combined, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. So um, I know that uh, Neville was uh, arrested. Uh, he he was living in Amsterdam, but he went to Australia, I guess, to visit family. Um, and he got picked up by the Australian authorities at, at the behest of the, of the U.S. government on June 24th, 1990. Um, from what I've read, he was detained for like 11 months. Uh, he was appealing his extradition, but then he was granted bail under kind of unusual circumstances, I guess, and and kind of disappeared and, and went back to the Netherlands uh, to to keep breeding, I guess, right? Right. He was basically underground, and very few people knew where he was, and um, probably Sam... Dave Watson probably was still in touch with him, but um, yeah, uh, nobody heard from him. And then, um, then after 20 years, I guess he went back to Australia when the heat was off. Yeah. Now, now you brought up Sam again, Sam the Skunk Man, uh, a huge figure in the cannabis uh, cultivation world. Um, he was uh, working with Neville, sold him, well, at least sold him some, some genetics at some point. Um, and then I know that after Neville got busted, there were these rumors uh, that I think even Neville and some of his associates were spreading that Sam the Skunk Man was the one who snitched on him, essentially, that Sam was some kind of undercover DEA agent, um, which I'm pretty sure has been has been disproven. Um, what do you know about that? Do you, you know Sam the Skunk Man, right? What's your take on all that? Yeah, Sam... Sam and Robert Colonel Clark came through Corvallis in 84, 85, something like that, and um, looking for genetics out of Oregon. And then um, I went down to Sam's house in Santa Cruz uh, one time and sort of interviewed him. And um, I, I lost touch with him until uh, Todd McCormick did a podcast called Hash Church about three years ago or so. And he was he was on that. It was like a, a round table. I think we did like six or seven. It had Robert Connell Clark, me, 
Sam, uh, one other guy, forget who. And um, we didn't get into any of the history. We were just talking about current events. And, um, you know, I sort of lost touch from mid-80s to then. And um, there's all kinds of rumors, you know, Ray Kogo as, as the the snitch. I don't know what to believe. I mean, Todd McCormick found some court papers where Ray admitted to snitching people out but who knows what to believe yeah i mean i I, you brought that up i did find in my research uh those affidavits there's several court documents that came out where ray anthony kogo uh who worked we should say uh introduce who who he is ray kogo worked for neville um i think in 88 89 uh right before everything went down he was a he was a distributor for holland seed bank here in the u.s um, and I guess he got busted. And from what we can see in the in his affidavit in the court documents, he began he became an informant and he began working with the DEA and basically supplied customer lists to the peop of the people who were ordering seeds from the seed bank to the DEA, even though Neville supposedly had uh, you know instructed him to destroy that that information. Right. Yeah. It's it's such a convoluted story. And, you know, it's got many uh, angles to it. But um, now that Neville's passed away, it's sort of going in ancient history. Yeah, I mean, Neville, uh, before he before he went into hiding, Neville did go on to, uh, he actually sold his seed bank and cannabis castle to Ben Dronkers, who then, you know, of course, folded it into his Sensi Seed Club and, and created Sensi Seed Bank, which which we all know today. Um, and then Neville actually went on to co-found Greenhouse Seed Company with uh, Ariane and, and Shanti Baba, I believe. Right. But now there's so many seed companies in the United States that people don't even hardly order from Europe anymore. Sure. And then we should also mention that uh, Ray Kogo, who, you know, who is, I mean, he's not only accused of being a snitch, there is actual documentation proving that he did supply at least some information to the DEA. How much, we don't know, but um, he's he's still selling cannabis nutrients out in Michigan, which is kind of crazy to right. me. Right, um, which he basically, uh, superior growers in Michigan originally formulated it, and it's a, he's accused by superior growers of doing a knockoff of it. Yeah. Well, like you said, uh, Neville passed away, unfortunately, in 2019, b- before any of us had an opportunity to really uh, talk to him and, and get his side of the story. I don't know, you know, if he ever saw those court documents, probably not, or if he still believed that Sam was the one who did it. I, I don't know. Um, but uh, it was real. He was sort of a recluse. He didn't like talking to journalists. And because we tried connecting with him and and Sam tried getting a connection with him for, through for us, but he didn't want to be um, interviewed. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, you know, uh, we should mention also that, uh, you know, Operation Green Merchant didn't end with those raids. It went on for several years after that initial, uh, you know, after those initial raids, DE agents were serving subpoenas not only on hydro store owners, but on the customers whose information they got from the records they seized from the shops, from the UPS, and from, I guess, from from the information they got from Kogo through through the um, Holland Seed Bank. Right. Um, right. And this went on for quite a while. Um, they eventually arrested, I think, over 1,200 people, um, dismantled almost 1,000 indoor grows, and seized up to like $17 million in assets. Um, there are dozens of people serving long prison sentences uh, because of it uh, to this day. Um, so uh, how did it end eventually? Do you know what, what eventually was the nail in the coffin on Operation Green Merchant? I think they just gave up on it, uh, you know, after getting some people convicted and um, stealing all those millions of dollars in, in assets. I think they just gave up on it. And then as as states did medical cannabis and legalization and then full legalization, they definitely have just given up. I mean, um, 
Well, not necessarily. They do participate in big bus. I mean, they just busted out, I think, a half a million plant operation down in Southern California because the the it was like it's like alcohol. Uh, the bootleggers are uh, cannabis bootleggers are still doing illegal operations. Yeah, they're just they're just focusing on uh, hundred thousand plant operations. We call it the and, traditional market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The legacy legacy, legacy market. market. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So until it's fully legalized, it's and lower the taxes. Uh, there's going to be an illegal legacy market. Um, and then um, there's still bootleggers. They busted some guy here in, in Northern California that was bootlegging along the river uh, alcohol. So it'll be that way forever. There'll be illegal legacy growers forever. Yeah. Because here in, in California, the tax is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's close to 35% tax when you add up the cannabis excise tax, the sales tax, the local tax, it's close to 35% if you go into dispensary. Yeah, it's insane. I'm, I'm still a big supporter of the uh, legacy market, uh, honestly. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you, you shut down Growing Edge magazine, I know, in, I think, 2009, and you retired from publishing. Um, so what have, you been, what have you been doing since then? What have you been up to? Well, I started, you know, I... Re I uh, Retired from Growing Edge in, in 2009, and I moved down to California in 2012, and I sort of tried to become relevant, and speaking at Emerald Cup, I spoke at it in four, four straight years. I was on panels with Jorge and Jeff Lowenfels, and um, in various grow uh, conventions and conferences in Palm Springs, and... and um, Seattle and Alaska. And then I, I was an expert witness for a while with uh, lawyers that were in disputes with legal growers and landowners. They had me appraise a crop uh, when the, the lawsuit was happening. But then I just said, you know, I'm going to just stay retired. So for three years, I was retired totally once the, uh, like 2018, I sort of totally retired. And then um, about six months ago, I said, I'm bored. And so I got a job at a, a traditional nursery as a, a customer service out in the yard, answering people's questions on shrubs and plants and stuff. So I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm out of the cannabis industry. Uh, I had a good 40-year run or 45-year run, and I'm just out of it. So no more no more growing? Do you even grow for yourself anymore? I did up until about a year ago. I had a heart attack, and um, oh. I don't smoke anymore. I just do tinctures and gummies and chocolate. The smoke in my lungs, even with a vaporizer, just I, cuts my oxygen. And no. the doctor said, just stick to tinctures and gummies and chocolate. So that's what I do. Yeah. But okay. You also put out a, a like a best of uh, Sensibility Tips book a while back too, didn't you? I did. Yeah. You want a copy for your museum? Sure. Yeah. Like I said, we have a few of the old issues, and we also have uh, some of the original uh, Neville's original seed catalogs. Um, we have the original issues of High Times where the you know where Neville and the Seed Bank were discussed and all that stuff. So yeah, if you have any cool uh, any kind of cool uh, stuff from back in the day, historical stuff, we would be interested in checking it out for the museum for sure. All right, all right, Tom. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and and uh, shedding some light on uh, on all that stuff with uh, Green Merchant and everything. Uh, we appreciate it and. Uh, I wish you the best, man. Uh, you you really uh, helped shape this uh, industry and this community for many years. And uh, much respect to you, my friend. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. And that's going to wrap things up for this edition of Canthropology. For more about the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our blog, visit us at worldofcannabis.museum. 
If you'd like to contact us, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click the subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our awesome media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you'll join us again next time here on Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history. History.